Okay, that is to my business contact by my grandpa. Welcome to our latest podcast uh, during, done during the time of social distancing. Uh, this one is called Rethinking Serious Psychiatric Diagnosis. I'm joined today with the Honorable Keith Frankel, who's the retired judge from San Marcos, and Susan Dykoff, who is our administrative pro, uh, pro tem. Susan, why don't you briefly introduce yourself? Hello, good morning, and thank you for doing this. Um, my name is Susan Dykoff. I'm uh, the administrative pro tem, as, as Charles said. Um, before that, I was a law professor for 23 years, and I taught law and psychology. Um, I have a, a long time ago, I had a master's in clinical psychology, and it worked in the field for about uh, about four years, focusing on adults with um, substance abuse and uh, severe trauma. And so I have, those are my, that's my background, and I'm happy to be on the call this morning. All right, and Judge Frankel, your background? Thank you, Charles. Before becoming a judge, I had a long history uh, in various jobs working in the behavioral health field, but the most relevant is I have a master's in social work from Arizona State University. Prior to that, I had a BSW from uh, State University of New York at Buffalo and worked in the substance abuse field, then got a master's. Did not do clinical work, but was in administration. So of significance in what relates to what we're talking about today, is probably one of the most significant things I did was at one point I was the executive director or CEO of uh, what is now the Regional Behavioral Health Authority and what I was over as a result of merger was designing the first uh, countywide case management system in Maricopa County for individuals at that time who were diagnosed as being seriously mentally ill. And I was the director of that, and then later in my career, I worked with an agency which we'll, we'll talk about uh, now called Innovation, uh, Innovation Recovery, I believe. They changed their name at the time. It was Meta, and I worked with them, and that was an agency that was on the forefront of uh, developing recovery programs, which we'll talk about, which refocused and had a lot to do with peer support, and I helped that organization grow and we took the concepts and the programs nationally. I've also been a, a surveyor with the Joint Commission and going out and looking at programs. So I have a long background in uh, the mental health field, behavioral health, that kind of area. And then I uh, decided to do something totally different and went and got myself elected as the Justice of the Peace for San Marcos, which is Chandler, as you all know. So Charles, in a, in a nutshell, um, what's of interest is actually, uh, and maybe people knowing me may not find that surprising, is being the uh, Justice of the Peace is the longest time I had for one job, so, um, so it, it was, I was able to hold the, the job longer by getting elected than I was by working uh, as a non-elected official. So I don't know what that says about me or, or the companies I work for. But So I guess the people do make good choices. Anyways, so <laughs> All right. moving on. Thank you. At this point, uh, so again, Charles, thank you for hosting this. 
what I'd like people to do to start with is, is just take a moment. There's no slide for this. I just want you to close your eyes if you feel comfortable or, or just focus. And I want you, when I say the word mentally ill individual or seriously mentally ill or someone with a significant psychiatric diagnosis, I want you to get a picture of somebody in your mind. So just take a moment, hear those words, and think of somebody. Now, if it's a family member, that's probably somebody you think of, but for most people, you may not have a family member. So just get a mental image of somebody. Okay, so Susan or Charles, if you feel comfortable, what, what, when I said that, what did you, what image did, came to mind? What did you think of? Well, I, I thought of a couple persons. Well, I, I, um, go ahead. No, Susan, you. Well, I was fine until you mentioned family members, and then I had to start going through my family to see. <laughs> but, uh, but I returned to my original image, which, you know, I, I, um, I forgot to mention. And, and uh, Judge Frankel, I appreciate your efforts in mental health in Arizona because I can tell you, having moved here from Florida, I, I think the level of services for individuals with severe mental illness in Arizona is a national standard, in my view, at least in, uh, you know, as it relates to the court system. Um, I had the privilege of working in the, um, the campus downtown that serves individuals experiencing homelessness. And so uh, a couple of the folks that, you know, my image of someone with severe mental illness comes from that, um, that population, although it's certainly not, you know, it's not limited to that, but that's what, that's what comes to mind, that's the picture. Okay, Charles, I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, I had a couple people in mind I'd, I'd probably rather not share. But. Okay. Well, which takes us, and this will be uh, in the PowerPoint, and for people, if you're following the PowerPoint, it, it's slide two. And, and, and the myth about mental health problems don't affect me. And we're going to dwell down on this or a little bit more because I have other slides and try to relate it even just to our court system. But... And this is from 2014 because it was a good presentation I found. So a fact, mental health problems are likely very common. In 2014, about one in five American adults experienced a mental health issue. Now, when we talk about a mental health issue or behavior health issue, that obviously expands it out. So if we're talking about substance abuse or we're talking about uh, drug abuse, or we talk about PTSD. I mean, there's a, a myriad of, of diagnoses that would fall under behavioral health problems. We also have one in 10 young adults uh, experience a period of major depression. So now we're, we're getting even a higher statistic, is that one in 10 will experience uh, major depression. And then one in 25 Americans live with a serious mental illness such as schizophrenic, bipolar disorder, or major depression. So you can see that obviously the farther, the more significant the diagnosis, the lower the statistic, but it's more common than people believe. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. 
It accounts for the loss of more than 41,000 American lives each year, more than double the number of lives lost to, to homicide. So we can see the effects of it. We can see that the prevalence of it, that is probably more than people have had. Well, obviously, when you get to that kind of number, and then, and then most people's perception is of the person walking down the street pushing a shopping cart or talking to themselves or, or the homeless population, that's going to be a relatively much smaller number than the actual number of Americans or, or people in Maricopa County that are affected by a significant psychiatric diagnosis. Forget about the drug abuse or the, the uh, um, alcoholism and meth addicts. I mean, we're just talking about people that have a significant psychiatric diagnosis. So that got me to, to think about, uh, and then we can go through on the next slide, slide three, is the percentage of American adults with mental disorders in any one year. And this slide kind of talks about uh, about how common it is or prevalence. And a national survey found that 19.6 of adults 18 or older experienced a mental health disorder in any one year. Uh, and this is in the United States, that's the equivalent of 45.6 million people. So when we start thinking in those kind of numbers, especially all of us now are focusing on those kinds of numbers, because we're getting inundated with numbers as it relates to the pandemic about how many people have it. And it's probably sort of an analogy because we talk about with the pandemic, there's so much coming out about X percent, 70 percent of people may be infected but aren't going to show signs of it. And the percent that are, uh, you know, where we get all the way up to terminal, the, it, there's sort of analogy there because here we're saying that there's 45.6 million people that in fact um, are going to experience mental disorder. And then on the slide you can see we have anxiety disorders are the highest, major depressive at 6.8, substance abuse 8%, bipolar 2.8, eating disorders 2.1, schizophrenia 0.15, and any mental disorder 19.6. So I think one of the most significant things on this slide is most people when they think of psychiatric diagnosis are going to think about the 0.45% because schizophrenic, that's the, that's the perception people have of somebody with a serious mental illness. Somebody who's schizophrenic, delusional, talks to themselves, um, psychotic, uh, you know, not in touch with reality. And when you you think it through when you look at these kind of slides, you see that it's more prevalent. And I think that as, as more attention has been given, some of the stigma that goes with mental illness um, is going away. And then you have more people, I mean, I don't think what any of us thought about this, and I went out just myself um, and said, okay, give me some of the famous people that, that have reported, self-reported, uh, mental illness because as, as the push in the country and people trying to, to be more sensitive to this and realize their stigma, I don't think most people thought of John Hamm. I mean, he's somebody who came to mind. John Hamm has identified he has anxiety disorder. Uh, Dwayne Rock Johnson identified that he has um, a, di a mental health diagnosis. 
Lady Gaga has identified she has a mental health diagnosis. I don't think these are the kinds of people that I know that the three of us probably imagined or that you imagine if you're listening to this, but, but we're recognizing there's more people. I don't know if everybody remembers back, depending on your age. I mean, there was a big thing that uh, Patty Duke came out and acknowledged that she'd been suffering from depression and had mental, what she defined as, quote, mental illness at the time. So uh, Carl Sandburg believes Abraham Lincoln had mental illness um, based on things he's learned about him and that, that he wrote, etc. So it's there. Um, I know when I did these presentations and I worked for uh, Recovery Innovations, and we would go to mental health agencies, and we would talk about and get people to, to kind of acknowledge whether they themselves had a, a psychiatric diagnosis or there was mental illness, and you couldn't get people even there really to raise their hand because of the stigma that goes with this. So it, 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 it's something that people don't want to talk about. It's something that, that is there, but there, there still is a lot of stigma related to mental illness, and it's unfortunate, um, and we'll, we'll also talk more um, as we get into it, even people with mental illness, it's interesting how they will, they will talk about it because generally they will talk about it in relationship to their diagnosis. So a lot of times if you're dealing with somebody who has a significant psychiatric diagnosis, they're, they're pretty much defining their whole life by their diagnosis. They're going to say, I'm schizophrenic, I'm bipolar. Um, so we'll, we'll address that a little bit more. So then I thought about, okay, because we generally don't, you can see it out there in a bigger universe, I just thought it would be interesting to just look at it. And I did this presentation for uh, the, J, at the JP conference, uh, the State Justice of the Peace Association conference two years ago. And so I put this data together and I looked at it. The number of this is going to be slide four. The number of judges and employees, and at that time, there statewide there were 88 judges. There were 800 full-time employees. There were 167 part-time employees for a total of 1,055 employees. In 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 statewide in the justice courts, utilizing national family size estimates, there would be that would affect 3,312.7 people. I don't know who has a .7 person because it's estimated the average family size is 3.14. Um, I don't know if either of you have point family members, but uh, that's the problem with statistics. So then I took that, which is now slide five, and have estimating prevalence within statewide courts. And so I took our statistics, and then I used the NMIH uh, estimated prevalence, and you, the numbers come out with this. As anxiety, uh, the, 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 as you saw from that previous slide, is 19.1, that would mean within the court personnel and families, there's 184.13 people um, that would have an anxiety disorder. There's 65.56 that would have major depressive. There's 77.12 would have substance abuse. There's 27, 27 
who probably have themselves or a family member um, with bipolar, 20.25 with eating disorder, 4.34 schizophrenic, schizophrenic, and 188.95 uh, with any mental disorder. Um, now, I don't know, Susan Charles, your reaction, but when I put these numbers together, I was pretty surprised by the numbers. Now, if I went and asked people, got all the state employees, whatever, and asked people, even on a sheet of paper, to write down, do you have a family member that has this, 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 or this, I don't think we'd come anywhere to self-reporting to get those numbers. So let me ask either of you, did you, were you surprised by these numbers? So I have a, a question, and, and I guess, yes, um, if you, you're saying that this is the number of just states, and I'm assuming that Maricopa County has about half of, half of that number, basically. Um, so you're saying that you took all of the statewide Justice Court employees and applied slide three, to that number, and this is, is that right? Remember, they, and their family members, so they, we were going on oh, 3,000. Oh, and their family members, okay, so either right. they or yeah. someone in their family has. Yeah, I think um, I think that it, it, if you go back to slide, I mean, it is a real shocker, but if you go back to slide two, one in five American adults has a mental health issue, and most people in their family have five people, or they know, you know, extended family, they know five people in their family. I mean, that means most of us have a very close person that um, suffers from a, a some kind of mental illness. Well, yeah, some kind of, I mean, I think we, we maybe differentiate, say it has some kind of behavioral health problem. So, you know, and generally people are, are, find it less of a stigma. I mean, I, I know that there were people that talk about, you know, my mother, father, sister, aunt, uncle, whatever, uh, and alcoholism. And I know when we, I know all of you, when you do a jury trial, I'm, I'm sure all the judges have experienced that. I mean, my, the first time doing one, I was sort of shocked because you asked that question, how many of you, you know, do you yourself or a family member, close friend, ever been arrested or charged with um, a DUI? And at least in Chandler, my experience has been uh, almost 50% or more of the hands go up. So so that we know that drinking or alcoholism is a prevalent. And if you ask people, you know, a family member been alcoholic or recovered alcoholic, you get a significant number of hands going up. We don't ask the question, have you or any family members uh, been diagnosed with uh, a, mental, uh, a mental health problem um, because it doesn't relate. And I also am inclined to believe if we ask the question, people would be less self-reporting than they do about a DUI, um, but uh, these are kind of the numbers. Now, you also would say in the court population, there's probably an overrepresentation of, of because the statistics are slightly different for men and women with depression or um, some of the other diagnoses, and we probably have 
statistically more women, obviously, working in the courts than we do men. Um, but, but applying the general statistics, um, this is what it looks like. Um, so I just thought it was, was interesting because I think it's out there more, but it's not something that people want to talk about um, because there, there's still a stigma about mental illness or having a psychiatric diagnosis much more so than there is about admitting that, um, that somebody's alcoholic or has a drinking problem or a drug problem. So then if we go to uh, slide six, the next myth we're kind of talking about is, again, because people have this perception, people with mental health problems are violent and unpredictable. Um, and, and we see this played over over and over again. Every time that there's uh, mass shootings or violent acts, there's a presumption that it, it's a mentally ill person that's doing it, and, and we talk about gun control or things like that, and I'm not getting into any of the politics of this, but there's this perception, and the movies have done that, the psychotic killer, um, that they, they portray an individual um, clearly having a mental health issue, clearly maybe having a psychiatric diagnosis, committing horrendous violent acts. And we even have the movie uh, Psycho and Alfred Hitchcock. And um, so, but the vast majority of people with mental illness problems are more, no more likely uh, to be violent than anyone else. Most people with me mental illness are not violent, and only 3 to 5% of violent acts can be contributed to individuals living with a serious mental illness. Now, that's the first statistic. The next part of this, in fact, people with severe mental illness are over 10 times more likely to be the victims of violent crimes than the general population. What this slide doesn't say is... Um, if you look at um, sort of the onset of a psychiatric episode in individuals, there probably was a precursor of a violent act committed on the person. Um, and there is a, a high correlation between individuals, uh, women that have been raped, incest, uh, assault, some violent act occurred, child abuse to an individual, um, which caused a change in the brain chemistry in the way that the neurons were, the synapses, and that brought on the onset of mental illness. And there's a high correlation of individuals um, who, as a result of violence committed against them began evincing uh, symptoms of mental illness um, of a, and, and developed a psychiatric diagnosis. I know I, at the, that one agency I keep referring to, I worked with an individual um, and he worked at the crisis center. Um, he had been walking down the street. He was jumped by gang members. He was beaten. And after that, um, he developed uh, schizophrenia, and he heard voices, and he still hear voices. 
he's learned to cope with it, but, but there was no sign of any of that um, before um, being uh, jumped and beaten. So a lot of times with a lot of individuals, um, there is something that happened. Uh, they're, they're trying to understand if there's genetics and it's possible that there's some genetic connection, but with more people, there's an external uh, event that occurred, something, um, and that brought on and changed the brain chemistry and the mental illness. So, I mean, I, there, now, that's with major, major psychiatric diagnosis. Let's say schizophrenia. I know plenty of people are going to say, well, there's a history of depression in my family. Um, there's a history of this and that. And, and they're, 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 we're trying to understand that more. And there could be a genetic connection um, between certain types of diagnoses and genetics. But unfortunately, we just don't know enough about brain chemistry and about how this, how this works um, that to be able to make definitive statements or know really how to treat it. So I'd ask, you know, again, asking the same question is, is if I hadn't said this before, did, did either of you, uh, Susan maybe less, maybe Charles more only, Susan, because you worked in the field, have this perception that there's a high rate of violence that mentally ill people with a significant psychiatric diagnosis, in fact, being violent themselves? I find that uh, to be pretty shocking. I, I, I had not even considered that a traumatic event could actually alter brain chemistry. Uh, what I was thinking of is how it is more likely that someone who does have a situation would turn to substances to um, try to cope with, with that. So I, I did expect the interplay of substance abuse and mental health disorders, but not a traumatic event actually triggering the onset of it. Susan, is that, I mean, had you, based on your previous background in psychology, had they taught that? Did they, did they discuss that? Well, it, it, I, agree with, I agree with Charles. That's, a, that's a kind of an unusual. I hadn't seen that, but I worked with an awful lot of folks with uh, um, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. We call it PTSD, and we're finding out more. So uh, it's it's uh, and we don't know much about brain chemistry. I don't think we don't know how how external events and it can interplay with um, internal you know um, internal chemistry. I guess to to cause certain things. So I wanted to I wanted to follow up on something that's been uh, that's been evident to me over the last few slides, Judge, and that's that uh, I really like that you say. Uh, over and over again, a person with a mental health problem or a person with mental illness or a person challenged by or suffering or recovering from mental illness as, a person to, as opposed to a mentally ill individual. And um, that's, a, that's a paradigm shift that I, you know, had to undergo at some point in my life, and, and I really appreciate that. It allows a person to say, I might have this situation, but it doesn't define me, and I appreciate that you said that. Well, 
Susan, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because when we would um, work with people and and w even work with agencies, uh, we would we would try to talk about creating a recovery environment, and we would we would try to talk about uh, how you approach it because you and I both know in a traditional staffing um, they talk about the client, the patient, and they talk about it as a third person, kind of as in an abstract sense. Oh, patient presented as a 36-year-old male with bipolar, and, and they go on this whole discussion about what's best for the person, and we would try to get them to reframe that and say, no, talk about Tom. This is Tom. Even put a picture of Tom on the table that this is real. If you're not going to have Tom in the room with you, at least talk about Tom. Use Tom's name. Um, personalize it because, because that is a person. And, and then you're going to not think about them in the abstract, and you're not going to think as much about making decisions for them. So it's not the client needs to. It's I'm going to work with the client uh, I'm going to work with Tom on uh, helping him to do X, Y, Z. Um, and so, yes, it, it, it really begins to, to reshape this and think about it. Um, I also did, uh, we did this program in, in peer support, and you would work with people, and you would have them walk in the room, and this would be the first time and how you do in any group setting, and you'd have people say, you know, we want to introduce yourself, and you'd ask them to write down. Well, they wouldn't write down their name. They would write down their diagnosis. And so I'm schizophrenic, and I'm, I'm bipolar, I'm manic-depressive, and so they're writing down their diagnosis. So we would have them take that little piece of paper, and we would have them rip it up, and we would say, that's the last time here when we're doing this together, we want you to refer to yourself or think even think of yourself as your diagnosis. Think of yourself as time. And so it's even with the individual. Um, and, 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 you know, we could, I could go on and on about this because the, the problem with the mental health system is, is, is a lot of times I don't know why they think individuals with a significant psychiatric diagnosis like to play ping pong on tables with no paddles, go to parks and do volleyball games, etc. Um, instead of whatever, but that's a whole other discussion. So if we go to slide seven, what people recover from, and I think the significance of this is, so we've now established that there's a, the high correlation of, of uh, between violence, a significant number of women that, are, that report um, in mental health centers with a, a, psych, a significant psychiatric diagnosis have been raped um, or incest or child, of, you know, result of child abuse. There is a, just an extremely high correlation of, of that kind of traumatic event producing, and then also we know um, the other behavioral health problems. So, but when you begin to look at, even for the person that might be the stereotype um, that, that people imagine, that person... Um, on the street or um, pushing that shopping cart or talking to themselves on the corner or whatever. If you really look at 
what they probably have is experienced in their life, the trauma of psychosis, admissions to hospitals, if, if, if they're aggressive, being restrained, um, lack, of, lack of support, um, inability to access services, assaults, being uh, poverty, and I think I said homelessness. I mean, a myriad of things. And put yourself in that person's position, which, which you know, I have tried to do, and think about it, and think about, would I continue? Would I even have the inner strength to have that kind of thing, be homeless, know there's something wrong with me, poverty, uh, been trauma, been admitted to hospitals, would I have the strength to go on? And when you think about them, the ability to still be surviving, um, I think it, 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 it proves what, tremendous resource that person has if you can tap into it um, because um, I don't know that I could experience all that um, and still go on um, I, I you know I can't speak for the two of you but 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 I, I think that the, the, the despair etc would would overcome me um, and so when I dealt with family members who have come in and we're going to address that later for protective orders I try to get them to refocus and, and think about how hard it is for that person, and there is hope, um, and that obviously that person wants to continue, wants to go on, um, and so um, there's something if you can help them tap into that and realize that, um, it can move forward. But um, the, the, the purpose of this slide, and this was developed by a Dr. Callie um, from uh, New Zealand and, and put together this to try to help people, and these were psychiatrists, to help people rethink um, similar to what we're talking about now. So you might find it interesting because you probably haven't thought about all these things that probably uh, individuals, people with a significant psychiatric diagnosis um, have experienced, especially people um, with, with a more significant diagnosis who probably have been admitted to hospitals, may have been admitted to a crisis center, may have experienced being restrained. I mean, think about that, actually being uh, physically restrained and what that would do to you. Any reactions? Oh, I agree. Okay. Uh, the next the next slide, which is going to be slide eight, is, is is trying to deal with the myth that there's no hope. That that and, and part of it is why I think people don't want to admit with mental illness that somebody has a mental illness, or or tend to get very upset, or even with family members tend to go um, towards that it's tragic. And I'm not saying it's not but tend to go to, towards we're just going to have to resign ourselves that, that, that Billy, Susan, uh, Keith, Joe, Grandpa, uh, and we're not talking about dementia because that's, that's, that's a whole other world, and obviously that's, that's sort of different. I mean, it might, it's a mental health issue, but, but I'm not going to deal with that because that's, that's way beyond the scope and that, you know, would take us somewhere else. But um, dealing with major depression and bipolar or whatever, um, and they're never going to get better. 
Well, that that that's the key thing to think about. They're saying they never get better. There's no hope for people uh, with mental illness problems. Once a friend or family member develops mental health problems, he or she will never recover. Well, we know in alcoholism that there's recovery and AA, and so we know that you can be an alcoholic and you can recover from an alcoholic. We know there's drug abuse and you can be a, 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 a drug addict and you can recover. We know that there's people that, that can get an initial diagnosis with some type of minor anxiety disorder. I mean, I, putting minor on a scale, it's never minor, but a minor anxiety disorder or depression, and there's medications, SSRIs they can take, um, and, and they will be fine. Uh, and so um, it, 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 it's no different than, than taking insulin or something, and they generally want to do it. Now there's more significant ones um, and get into the medication issue uh, or, and people asking the question, why wouldn't they take it? But studies, repeated studies show that people with mental health problems get better and many recover completely. Contrary to what most people think, myself included, before I got more immersed in this, is somebody who experiences schizophrenic probably is going, only going to have one major schizophrenic um, experience. It's not going to be something that completely repeats itself over and over and over again. And I found that really surprising. But, but studies have shown that there may have been one major um, episode, psychiatric episode, one episode of schizophrenia, and that was it. That's the only time the person experienced that level or that degree of um, disability. So people can recover, and that becomes a, a very essential thing. And recovery refers to the process in which people are able to live, work, learn, and participate fully in their communities. And then we talk about there are more treatment services and community support services than ever before, and they work. Um, now... Again, not getting too political with this. Um, for a long time when I was in the field, Arizona ranked 48th in the nation of what we spent and had available for individuals with uh, a serious um, psychiatric diagnosis. It's still a big issue in Arizona. Um, it's a big issue all over the country. Um, so... There are services available. Hopefully they become more accessible. We can talk about it a little more at the end. And, um, um, but, but, but it's still somewhat limited. But there are services there. And fortunately, the services have evolved, and there's much more of people thinking about recovery. So somebody engaging with the system, um, now people are using the word recovery and talking to family members about recovery and helping people have their own personal paradigm shift and begin to realize this isn't, this isn't a fatal disease. This isn't, uh, you're not locked in, in, into this diagnosis and it's never gonna get better because in fact, people can recover. People can even move on to the point where they don't even need, if that's their goal, um, they don't need to take medications anymore. Um, they they um, can go for that. Now, obviously, depending on when that happens, there's other issues that that 
sort of can't be helped. If you dropped out of college and you're now in your 40s or 50s, it's going to be very difficult. And, and yes, you can recover, and yes, you can get off medications, um, but we can't go back in time. So you're not going to be able to just pick your life up because it's generally um, the psychiatric diagnosis comes on in adolescence or a lot of times people in college. And so, yes, there's a part of your life now that, that you've missed. I mean, you're not going to be able to go back. Yes, you may be able to go back and get your degree, but you're not going to be 24 when you do it. And on a professional career track, you may be 48. And that's obviously going to limit what you may or may not be able to do. Um, so, but from the psychiatric side, in terms of, 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 your, of, of your life at where it was with that diagnosis, you, you can recover from that in that you may not need to take medications anymore. Um, or you may take medications and you really don't need to, uh, you only need to see uh, the psychiatrist to get it refilled just like you would with anything else, like diabetes or whatever. You can check yourself, you learn things, you know how to cope with it. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little more about that. So, slide nine, for those of you that take the time to read it, um, I just put it in here um, because uh, I know as, as judges, there's a tendency, prove this to me. So I put in a slide, um, during much of the past century, there's been the general assumption both in mainstream psychology and psychiatry and among the general public that schizophrenia and other long-term psychotic disorders are degenerative and offer very little hope of full recovery. Over the past several decades, however, numerous longitudinal studies, and it goes on and lists them, um, have brought to attention the fact that not only do some people recover from schizophrenia, but the recovery is surprisingly common. So. For those of you who like to see it in black and white and statistics, here's a bunch of studies um, that you can look at or go back and read yourself um, to, to support the position I'm taking. And there's probably even more um, because this was from a presentation I previously did, and you can see the dates are, are somewhat dated. But, but we've known this for years, um, work from people like Tanya Harding um, and uh, Daniel Fisher, a psychiatrist in uh, Massachusetts, um, and, and pioneers kind of in this whole rec uh, Pat Harrigan recovery movement. So, so having said this, and then we also, I didn't put in slides, but, but for generally somebody that has um, been treated or diagnosed with a significant psychiatric diagnosis, um, the psychiatrist, um, if the individual is lucky, and this, please don't take this the wrong way, if the individual is lucky, will be able to identify one or two um, medications that can address um, and help the person as the SSRIs that they're talked about. And they're basically uh, serotonin inhibitors um, that affect how the brain synapses are working uh, or not working and, and will generally help the person. So, um, but for some people, um, the psychiatrist may not know, so 
so they may try a plethora of medications. It is not uncommon. I mean, there were people um, that came to this one agency that talked about taking 12, 14, 15 medications. I mean, every day, um, as a psychiatrist, we're trying to find the right balance. So, but, and then you would say, well, okay, so if, 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 if medications can help, um, why don't, why don't, why doesn't the person just take, take the medication? Well, there's a myriad of reasons, but, but think about it yourself. And, and uh, it doesn't surprise me. And I, I, when I brought it up, hopefully it gets people to think about it. I don't know, Charles, Susan, I don't know about you, but rarely, if I'm on an antibiotic, do I make it the whole 10 days of taking the antibiotic? Uh, two reasons. One, I forget whether I took it or not. Or secondly, oh, I don't need it. I feel better. And I stop taking uh, the medication. Now, maybe both of you are, are very medication compliant, uh, but I can tell you more times than not, uh, I don't always make it. I'm supposed to be taking a baby aspirin every day, um, and I don't make that every day. Now, I'm not willfully not taking it. I just forget about it. It's not important. Uh, the antibiotics, I feel better, um, and, and I don't think about it. Um, now, I'll ask you, do you both, if you get a regime of antibiotics, do you make it all days and take every pill like you're supposed to? I do. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Susan, what about you? <laughs> But even the most benign, even, no, I don't, even the most benign medication um, I has side effects. Um, and, you know, you're right, you feel better or you're like, well, I've had three days of antibiotics and four days and now my stomach really hurts and I don't want to take these anymore. And I, I know I've talked to countless folks and, and had, you know, experiences with, some of these, the various medications, you know, personal and in the family and among friends and family, that for all of these things, there are significant um, life-changing side effects to the psychotropic medication that, that is prescribed for mental illness that people will say, it's not worth, you know, I don't want to live like that. And they'd rather battle through the, the mental illness than have, to, um, than have to put up with the side effects. So... There's, it's, it's, it's not as simple as you point out. We have our own issues, but it's also a, it's a complicated conversation. Um, and, and so this slide uh, deals with that fact. 40 to 50, this is rates of medication non-adherence. So don't, when you read this, this slide, don't look at it. At, you see these high numbers of these are people that are, are, are compliant. 46 to 50 percent of people with hypertension um, are medication non-adherence. Diabetes and oral med, is, you know, I mean, they're giving wide range of 7 to 64 percent. Insulin, 37 percent. Asthma, 25. So you, you look at these statistics. Now, part of it, as Susan said, is that is a critical issue. If you saw the side effects for some of these drugs, well, we're, I mean, we're talking about lithium, thorazine. I mean, the high-end SSRIs. Um, you you are not surprised. First of all, generally people don't want to admit or continually admit themselves. Every time I take my pill, it reinforces the fact that I have a significant psychiatric diagnosis. That's not how I want to live. But secondly, um, 
if you remember the famous movie, A Beautiful Mind, and, and that scene where he's talking, and he's the psychiatrist says to him, you have to take your medications. And he says, I don't want to take the medications. I can't make love to my wife. I can't think. I can't, I have no energy. I mean, you go through this list. Um, a significant number of the SSRIs um, cause weight gain. So you're telling a woman, um, or a man, but probably a woman being, hopefully doesn't sound sexist, being more sensitive to the issue, you have to take weight gain. It's going to cause hair growth. I mean, things that, that it does um, to your appearance, to your ability to do things, um, and then say, no, you're going to have to take this the rest of your life. Um, well, yeah, you could see why there would be this rate of, of uh, non-adherence to a medication regime. And if you don't give the person some hope or this idea of recovery or that we can get to, you might even get to a point where you're not going to have to take any medications at all, um, you just generally get the person uh, becoming uh, against it all and they're not going to take the medications. And then it gets in the cycle. You can see this over and over again, especially with, with uh, children and adolescents. The parents will... Get the, the work with the school, they get a child on medication, the child doesn't want the medication, and then the summer comes and the parent says, oh, they were doing so well, I took them off their medications. And medication compliance with children becomes incredibly difficult, especially if the child doesn't particularly like the medication. Uh, the parents want to see the improvement. Um, they don't want to attribute it to the illness, so they take the child, they let the child get off the medications, and you get in these horrendous cycles. Um, so we move on to slide 11. What is recovery? Recovery from mental disorders and substance abuse disorders is the process of change to which individuals improve their health and wellness, live in a self-directed life, try to, uh, try to achieve their full potential. Um, so that's what it is when we talk about recovery. And uh, the next slide, which is not going to be slide 13, is four dimensions of recovery. We have health, make informed healthy choices, home, have a stable and safe place, purpose, engage in meaningful daily activities such as a job or school, volunteering, caring for the family, or being creative, work for independence, income, and resources to participate in society and community, build relationships and social networks that provide support. Now, maybe one of the things that will, will come out of our own personal experience at the moment of this pandemic is realizing more and more people can work from home and more work environments can work from home. So we may find that it creates new opportunities. I know that, 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 that there's been more with people with autism and they're finding out how um, incredibly creative they can be, especially in the programming world, etc that we may find that maybe there's going to be more opportunity now for individuals that have a significant psychiatric diagnosis that can get jobs because they can work from home. Um, the employer's going to feel more comfortable on it. Um, their behaviors may be a little different, but they're working from home. They can work on a call center. Um, uh, you know, um, somebody who, who is uh, bipolar, if we will, or manic depressive, when they're in a manic state, with some control of it, they may have incredible energy, so they could be working from home and walking around when they're at a call center environment, but the call center is their house, and they can be more active than maybe um, could be tolerated in a, uh, a work environment. So um, 
there is the potential. Now, at 14, I'm just reinforcing this. I referred to Tanya Harding uh, study, um, and, and it talks about uh, in Vermont, a study she did a long time ago, that people who had the most serious symptoms were initially hospitalized the longest. Yet over the 30 years, she found that 68% either recovered completely or significantly. Um, and then it references it. And this goes back to 1987. The ju judge that, judge that, that's, that's Courtney Harding, not Tanya? Courtney Harding, right, yes. Sorry, Tanya was a skater. Tanya was a Courtney. skater who, who may have had some uh, serious mental disorder. but Right. And then other definitions, again, Courtney Harding, uh, defines recovery as happening when people have no enduring systems. Paris Williams described uh, recovery for people who have experienced psychosis, and then they achieve relative stability in their condition, and which the over a sense of suffering and limitations are the same. Um, and then we go to uh, slide 15, full recovery. This, Daniel, this is Daniel Fisher, and he was a psychiatrist who's been in the forefront of the recovery movement. Full recovery is defined as a life beyond services. He states, according to this view, one is capable of recovering from the mental illness itself, not merely regaining functioning while remaining mentally ill. And this is from a psychiatrist himself who has a significant psychiatric diagnosis, treats people, um, and so he understands all of it um, and, and believes himself this is where you can go. So obviously he's going to take a very different approach to people when it comes to medication, medication adherence, trying to get people um, to, to recognize that recovery is possible. So, Charles, Susan, anything, uh, any questions you have? Because then we're going to move into um, the protective orders uh, and talk more about, about that. Uh, and as it relates to judges on the bench and how this, how they may encounter certain situations. So, uh, either of you have anything you'd like me to address in what I've been uh, talking about so far? No. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, protective orders. Um, before we even started, um, so I was talking with, with Charles and Susan, and I asked, as a judge, how often have you seen, been on the bench, and they said, Judge, we have a protective order. Okay, so the person's been sitting there, and they fill out the petition, and then the clerk brings you the petition, um, and you look at it, and you get their name. I mean, this is before maybe even you walk into court, because you want to get a sense of, okay, what is, what's this all about? And they say, I want a protective order, so you're looking at it, and you make sure it's the right court and that they've, they've identified one of the people a protective order can be for, so an immediate family, a roommate. And then right in the beginning of it, probably in the first sentence, they tell you the individual is mentally ill, is bipolar, schizophrenic, has, has been this way for years, uh, that, that they, they, they may be, because there's a high degree of uh, comorbidity, that somebody who is also taking drugs, so they may be taking meth uh, on drugs, probably drugs more than alcohol, but they're taking drugs, and um, 
I'm, I'm, I fear for my life. Okay, so you read through it, and a lot of times they may even put in their whole history that they've been to the crisis center, and they're telling you things about the person. Um, they've been hospitalized in the past, um, and, and, and all of these things. And so now you go into court with them, and they're probably very emotional. And my experience has been if they talked about um, and they're afraid that the person is going to kill themselves or commit suicide, and well, obviously kill themselves, whatever, um, or they have engaged, it'll somehow come out, and the police told me to get this order. And that's the key words in there. And the police told me to get this order. And I'll address that um, in a minute. And, and in the slide, we talk about it. It says, petitioner writes in the petition, defendant has a serious mental illness and I think is taking drugs. He, she is my son, daughter, husband, lives, uh, lives with me, and I cannot take it anymore. I'm afraid I need them out of the house. Um, and then they may go on to explain behaviors like is up all night, talk to themselves, get angry. Okay, so, and we all know, and we, we have uh, been trained on what, what, what we need for an individual in order, and we'll send this out again. Um, it's a standard sheet that you probably had on your bench is what, what people, how, in order to get an order, they have to be. And it says your spouse or your, your spouse or your former spouse, your roommate, the father, person uh, that was previously in care, your parent, guard, grandparent, your spouse. And then it goes on, uh, the defendant committed or is about to commit any of the following. And if you read through the list that we have, um, endangers, threatens or intimidates, assaults, including use of a dangerous weapon or causing serious bodily harm, kidnaps, or unlawfully imprisoned, interfere with the custody of a child unlawfully, criminally trespasses, uh, or criminally damages disorderly conduct, stalks, abuses a child or vulnerable adult, interferes with judicial proceedings, using a telephone to terrify, intimidate, threaten, harass, annoy, or offend, and harasses. So you can go through the list, and my experience has been after we've you mentally are trying to check off from what they're saying, where does this fall into the list? We generally get to the harassing. Well, they're, 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 they're up all night and they, they're talking loud and I can't get sleep. And they'll, they'll repeatedly say, I'm afraid of myself. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is I believe then where the tough call comes is Look, we want to help the person. I mean, we see that they're really distraught. We can see that, 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 that yes, they're, they're in despair um, and that, that, um, that it's painful for them. That's the person we're there. But remember, it's an ex parte presentation. And the job of the judge is, while you're not there to defend or protect the defendant, you have to make sure that we're following the law. And we can't be going over to one side, again, it's ex parte, so we don't have the person. And you're probably not going to want to set it for hearing just so you can go look at the person yourself. I mean, you might. But generally, it's a rule. 
So you really need to be careful. I, I know I, let me personalize it. I try to be very careful that I don't sort of guide the person by asking them questions like, when was the last time they threatened you? I'll try to find out or get the person through the discussion, did they really ever threaten you? Are they violent? Has there ever been a history of violence? Um, those kinds of things. And generally, you know, if the person can establish to me um, that, that it is about giving, you know, giving an order, um, because you know that police are going to tell the person you have to get out. They're not going to take over getting them treatment or taking them somewhere unless they were actively psychotic. Um, the law is the law. Um, it's not what I necessarily would want to do. Um, I don't, you know, it's, it, it, I understand it, but I, I also am not going to not give the order uh, for the same reason and say, well, I know this person is going to then be homeless and this is going to exacerbate the situation whatever, because my obligation is to follow the law. I'm sitting there as a neutral party um, as being a judge. So the caution I'm giving is don't allow your perception of mental illness and what you may think, and, and, and generally if, if you had that preconception that the mentally Ill, that the individual with a significant psychiatric diagnosis is violent or it tends to be violent, or is going to be suicidal, um, I mean, listen carefully to what the person is saying um, and then make your judgment. Uh, now, where it also gets on is this whole concept of harassment, um, and that's going to be slide 18. Generally, harassment is going to be the area that this is going to fall under. The person that is presenting to you is going to be telling you the behavior that they have um, that they're finding harassing, up all night, banging doors, playing music loud, doing things. And I just put in, under Arizona Law 13-29-21, harassment classifications, um, what it talks about. And the reason I put the slide in is because that buys into slide uh, 19, uh, which especially those of you that are attorneys get is, is that whole legal concept of mens rea. And basically it's a culpable mental state, seeks to establish a defendant's intent, uh, determining mens rea, consider whether a crime was committed purposely, knowingly, recklessly, and negligently. So I think you can apply this a little bit is if the person we're saying is knowingly harassing me, that's what the law is saying, that's what, in order to get a protective order, is saying harassment as a crime, there's the, there's the perception of mens rea in that. So I have to think about it, because I asked other people trying to think of an analogous situation, is if somebody had Tourette's, and the family member came to you and said, my, my family member has Tourette's, and they blurred out all this stuff, and I can't take it anymore. Would you say that was harassment? No. So you have to um, get into Charles, you said no, up. right? Right. Pardon? No. Right. I just wanted to clarify, Charles said no. Okay. Um, 
So when you look at the individual whose behavior is a result of their, their psychiatric diagnosis, are they knowingly doing this? So even if we say the person is, 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 has, has a psychiatric diagnosis and is doing that, well, drug abuse is not one of the crimes that's there. So they do their meth, they're up all night, they're talking, they're doing all these things. Is it harassing? I mean, they're not doing it to the person, this is their behavior. So that's where it gets to be, to me, it gets to be very difficult, um, and, and you just have to use your judgment um, and try to um, protect yourself against being overly sensitive to the poor person standing in front of you who obviously is in despair. Um, and, and you can't order the person to treatment. You can't say, well, I can't give you the order, but I'm going I'm to order them um, here. Now, if the person, and we have a slide about it, and talks about the pre-petition, if the person really is suicidal or a danger to themselves or others, I mean, if the person was that threatened and, the, and they actually were threatening them, whatever, um, the police under the pre-petition law, have the right to take the person down to the crisis center um, and get them evaluated. And they can be held for 48 hours before you have to go through this, this whole petitioning process. Um, and, and But the problem is, is generally the police do not want to do it. Yes, there's a liability issue, but it also takes a lot of time. And so that's why I went back to my experience has been when they are the way they're presenting to me, um, I've got to ask myself, well, if it was as dangerous as, as, as they're trying to represent, um, why didn't the police take the person down to the crisis center? Um, because that's what they should have done, and that's what the law says, and that's what they're obligated to do. But no, they told them, go get a protective order, um, which puts the judge also in a difficult position because the person is walking in thinking, now this is just pro forma. Well, the police told me to come and get this. Um, and so, and we know that happens a lot of time with, with, in other allegedly domestic violence situations. The police don't want to be any more involved, so they tell one party, well, just go get a protective order. Um, and then you have to set it up, sort it out. Um, and we're going to include a uh, material about the pre-petition process. Yeah, I, I did search on the Superior Court form, uh, and I did, will it include with the packet the uh, civil commitment forms and the emergency civil uh, evaluation forms? Okay, and then, then um, the last slide I have is just one because it affects courts, and, and it's just a, a generic side, and this sort of surprised me to some extent about... Uh, Approximately 20% of inmates in jails uh, in state prisons have a serious mental illness. Well, if you look at the statistics, it probably shouldn't surprise you, um, but that's the number of people, and the statistic goes through, that are in jail that probably uh, have a significant psychiatric diagnosis. Jail is the worst place for them. They're, they're going to get inadequate treatment. Um, it's hard enough to get treatment in the community, let alone um, in jails. And in that kind of environment, I mean, you can just imagine that everything is um, exacerbated. So um, 
Charles, if I'm according to my clock, I believe we're probably just about or even over on our hour. Is that? We're, we're a little over, uh, so if you have any closing probably thoughts. Probably need or... to wrap it up. Uh, so I want to thank all of you um, who have listened to this, when you listen to it. Um, I will ha have Charles include when he sends it out. Uh, my email, personal email, is keith.frankel at yahoo.com. And if you're writing this down, and my cell phone number is 602-690-5208. And you can feel free to uh, send me questions or email me, and you can call me if uh, you have any specific questions and um, or anything I can do to help. And if you are looking for resources or even if you have personal issues or family and looking for resources, please feel free to give me a call. Um, I do understand the mental health system in Arizona and at least know how to go about helping you find resources. So um, on behalf of the three of us, thank you all for your time and attention and listening. And please uh, be safe, be well. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Thank you.